Welcome to the Marty Smith America Podcast, Volume 9. This week's installment, I guess I would call it interesting. It includes an interview with documentary filmmaker Billy Corbin, he of Cocaine Cowboys and 30 for 30 fame. Corbin's pair of 30 for 30 films on the University of Miami football program, The U and The U Part 2, are among the most popular in the series. The intensity and passion Miami players have for their program and their brand, it's intoxicating. And Billy captures it like nobody ever has. I'm a huge fan of Billy's work, so I wanted to sit with him and learn more about what it's like to sit across from a hired assassin like he did when he was filming Cocaine Cowboys. Like a real one. How do you possibly convince lifelong career drug smugglers that it's a good idea to sit down and tell you their secrets? Billy did it. And what did he learn about his alma mater, the U, while shooting that pair of films that he didn't already know? Here's Billy Corbin on the Marty Smith's America podcast. Buckle up. It's a big one. Thrilled this week to have documentary filmmaker Billy Corbin on the Marty Smith's America podcast among his projects his Cocaine Cowboys, and, of course, the pair of 30 for 30 films on the University of Miami's football program. Among the most memorable in the 30 for 30 franchise, Billy, I'm asked all the time, hey, man, we love 30 for 30. What's your favorite favorite movie? And it's that's a hard answer because so many of them are so brilliant, but invariably it always seems to come back to uh, to your pair of Miami movies. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. I'm just really intrigued by your career and the diversity of the films that you've created. I mean, you, you've done everything from sexual assault to drug culture to football and to what athletes being completely broke after they were quadrillionaires. That, that, that all sounds like the same subject to me, Marty. Uh, well, somewhat. Yeah, I mean, somewhat. I feel like, I feel like I might not be a one hit wonder, but I may be a one trick cowboy. <laughs> Well, you do have a really unique storytelling style, and I can't wait to get into it with you. But Thank you. Thank you, you for know, that. Your most coveted talent for me is that you have this tremendous ability to find the most Because Florida news headlines ever <laughs> on, uh, on the Twitter machine. And we have this feature. Uh, I do a, a Saturday morning radio show on ESPN Radio called Marty and McGee with my buddy Ryan McGee. And we have this feature every Saturday morning at 845 Eastern called Hillbilly Headlines. And we used to have to sort of scour the Internet to find these complete idiots to satiate our redneck desires. But, brother, <laughs> all we got to do is click on your Twitter page now. You put it on a tee for us. Describe your infatuation <laughs> with Florida rednecks. Well, First of all, they're not all rednecks, uh, for the record. Uh, we have a pretty diverse <laughs> subsection of Florida fuckery here, which has become its own genre, you know, of its own genre of social media, its own genre of journalism, its own genre of film in a way. And, and so, um, you know, we had this, this place here. Uh, I'm a native Floridian. I was born in Fort Myers, uh, and a lifelong Miamian. So I've now lived in two of the great basketball cities of the world. Thank you very much. Dunk City, uh, Fort, Fort Myers and, uh, and now Miami, but, um, you know, what it did, the way I, I always describe it, my shorthand for it is, um, you know, Los Angeles is where you go when you want to be somebody. New York is where you go when you are somebody. And Miami is where you go when you want to be somebody else. You know, it's always been a sunny place for shady people. And that is true for the entire state of Florida. Everybody is from someplace else. Everybody is running from something. It's not a coincidence that the vast majority of fugitives on America's Most Wanted are eventually <laughs> caught or killed or killed themselves or wind up in the ocean here uh, in Florida. It's just that kind of... It's just that kind of place. There's no indigenous industry. We don't produce anything in the state other than oranges and assault rifles. And um, otherwise, we just sell sunshine. We sell the Florida dream. It's lies that came true. And so it's just a hustle. <laughs> it's a hustle town. You know, I mean, Florida was built on on real estate hustles. It still is money laundering and real estate hustles and, you know, and, and swampland and selling people bridges and, you know, and. And all that kind of stuff, and and so it it continues to to be that uh, to to this day. John Walsh should just set up shop in uh, on I ninety five is what you're telling me, Billy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he would he would he would. That's all he would have to do. You know, I mean, that's all you need is 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 Florida. I mean, just just think of how less interesting uh, the country would be without Florida. And that's the other thing too that's really crucial. And I think the reason why, even though we we're, you know, we're based out of Miami Beach, our company Raconteur, where we produce our, our documentaries and, and a lot of our projects are obviously Miami or Florida 
centric mm-hmm. as is my Twitter feed, but it seems to it seems to travel. I mean, it's touched you guys, and you know we hear about it from from all over the world, uh, and the projects seem to be international, even though they they they're almost kind of provincial in their you know in their in their concept or their their topic and development. Um, but I think it, it it travels because the Florida of today is the America of tomorrow. I mean, if you want to know what uh you know cha- uh, challenges will face or calamities will befall us as a nation in the years or decades to come you need only look at what's going on uh in in Florida specifically south florida it's the it's the bellwether it's the canary in the coal mine it all seems to emanate from from here and exported out to the rest of the country you talk about it being international uh so that leads me right to the first thing i want to discuss how do you choose movie topics oh it's tough man um because you you just don't it's a matter of of kind of having trying to have your fingers on the pulse of what an audience wants to see you know and and I always say um the measure of success for a filmmaker is not money you know or box office it's not uh reviews uh it, it's all it is is you get to work again you know if you get to work again in the, in our business then you are a, you're a successful filmmaker you know so that means you have an audience no matter how big or small that 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 digs your stuff and and wants to keep seeing and hearing more uh from you and so in order to do that you got to make sure there is an audience you know on the other end of these of these things and i got to tell you for us i think it's been a little bit easier being in miami not moving to like new york or la you know especially la it seems to be a vacuum of ideas you know it's they're not really in touch with like the the real world Reality. you know exactly it's just it's a you know how else to explain in our lifetimes um two asteroid hurtling towards the earth movies in the same year two robin hood movies in the same year <laughs> two truman capote movies in the same year two christopher columbus movies in the same year two uh white house under siege movies in the same year two i mean you just keep going through the list of two volcano movies in the same year you know like you think about it in our lifetimes like like one studio puts one out and then the very next you know month it seems it's the same friggin movie it's the same poster it's the same plot and you're like did somebody just like decide volcanoes are hot this year or what and what happens is is that one studio green lights something and another studio across town goes hey don't we have like a script about volcanoes collecting dust somewhere in development and they they blow off the dust and they go volcanoes baby you know truman capote's hot you know it's like give me a break you know nobody asks the country are you interested in you know, and seeing any of these things. And, you know, we came up with this idea. We went to Sundance uh, with our first documentary, Raw Deal, A Question of Consent, in January of 2001. We were 21, 22 years old. Which was the, way, way ahead of its time. As it turns ter- out, yeah. As it turns out, right. I mean, for those of you who don't know, Raw Deal is a movie about sexual assault, rape, that, uh, Billy, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, but occurred or allegedly occurred at the University of Florida? Yes, in a fraternity house there. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and it was all captured on videotape and we incorporated that videotape footage into the documentary with interviews with the exotic dancer who, uh, was the alleged victim and, and the, the frat men and, uh, who were involved and put it all together. And, um, and it was, it made a big splash at, at, at Sundance and, um, we were on the front page of the New York Post and, and we did like 60 interviews in five or six days and everybody asked the same thing, you know, what are you guys going to do next? Are you going to move to LA, move to New York? And, as obvious as it was to them that we would move to LA or New York, it was just as obvious to us that, you know, we came from this town in Miami, which is just an untapped resource of, of compelling stories and characters that we wanted to go and tell. And, and that's when we came up with the idea for cocaine cowboys. And, and we went out, you know, cause we, we had this big splash at Sundance. We could get meetings with anybody, right? So we're meeting with all the distributors and the buyers and everything. And, and in those days it was tougher because it was still, there was a lot of gatekeepers. You know, we didn't have the internet and, 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 uh, social media. And you really had to go to like, you know, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight people. You know what I mean? Could make the difference, you know, could make or break, you know, whether or not you got to, to make a project. So we, nobody got it. Nobody wanted to make cocaine cowboys. How, why? Uh, we, I don't we, understand. We, One of the most fascinating topics and maybe it's just me i don't know but obviously well, it's you too at the, the, the <laughs> 70s and 80s south florida miami drug trade is the most gripping topic for me i will watch everything on it dude we thought it was a no-brainer but like, you know we we and and i think if you're in miami and you realize you know i i would figure you only need to watch one episode in those days of mtv cribs you know to know that like uh, I'll never forget. I think it was Trick Daddy one day at his house in Miramar. Um, he had his uh, he had his blinds open and on cribs. He's like, check this out. 
and he closes the blinds and he had a Scarface poster that someone had like, you know, obviously glued to the blinds, but then sliced, you know, where the blinds separated yeah, so that yeah. he could open it up. But then when he closed it, it would be like, boom, the scar. And I'm like, and if you saw that Scarface was on the top, like of the stack of DVDs in every hip hop artist house and it had become like this, you know, th- this cult classic. Obviously, because it was not a hit, you know, when it when it first came out. But but it was like this whole new generation of, you know, of hip hop fans, which 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 means all which means the entire country, you know, had kind of adopted this Horatio Alger story, this, you know, rags to riches, this American dream by any means necessary story of this immigrant, you know, Cuban immigrant, Tony Montana in Miami and uh, during the Mariel Boatlift in the early 1980s. And well, the Mariel Boatlift was in 1980. And, you know, and we thought this was like. This is a great moment. You know, nostalgia cycles seem to run in like, you know, two decades, you know, like every 20, 30, you know, like people get interested and it seemed like things were, everything was kind of coming up Miami eighties again. The biggest video game of all time at that time was Vice City, you know, Grand sure. Theft Auto, a uh, Scarface had come out on like 20th anniversary, uh, DVD and it outsold, I think for Universal, like Jurassic Park and ET combined, you know, on DVD. And so like we thought this was a, a no brainer that we would tell the story of like the real Scarface or the real Miami Vice. Dude, blank stares across the table pitching this. I mean, really? Blank. Yeah, and you know, we said, "F this, man." <laughs> we went home and we just made it, you know, and and we scrounged the money together. We just, you know, we we pounded the pavement and and just did whatever we had to do. We edited the movie in my apartment, you know, and and um and then we released it, and it was similar. Like when we released it, we went to the Tribeca Film Festival, and it was like maybe two buyers who are interested and but but tom quinn who was at uh magnolia you know mark cuban's company um yep. tom quinn saw it at the tribeca film festival and this guy's got an eye for talent i i, I don't say that because he, he he picked our movie but because just his track record of, of picking oscar winners has been incredible but he saw our movie and he was like this is going to be huge he's the only person who said that who said that in 2006 all it takes and- is one billy <laughs> All it takes is one, and he changed our lives, you know? I mean, he, he, he put that, that movie out, and, uh, really, honestly, the, the bootleg market kind of took it, <laughs> took it from there, um, the summer, uh, of, of, uh, of 06 before the theatrical release ever happened, and, and, it, you know, the rest was, was history. Next thing you know, everybody was talking about this movie within, within a year or two or three or four, and, and ev- including everybody who passed on it. You know, I think some of them still don't get it. They don't understand the appeal, but what Tom Quinn later said, to, to, to us and, and to the press was that we kind of with cocaine cowboys we we put a spotlight on an unknown or at least underserved audience for nonfiction for documentaries that they weren't aware of the younger crowd of an urban crowd of a hip-hop crowd was interested in this and and it made perfect sense to us because what is you know what is that generation all about it's about keeping it real right it's about telling the truth and 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 telling true stories and and you know about your life about the streets about what so we just thought it would work and as it turns out in the long run we were uh we were right what is the challenge of chasing down career drug smugglers and convincing them it's a good idea to talk to you (laughs) let me tell you that's a funny question because it's evolved you know because cocaine cowboys now is uh over 10 years old so at the beginning it was a Took a little finesse, you know, at, at the beginning. I mean, and it's a great thing about being in Miami, though, is that like, you know, one of my pastimes is uh going to just I, I'm a dive bar guy. You know, I'm in South. Yeah, you, you I'm not a South Beach, you know, fancy nightclub, you know, velvet ropes kind of guy. I'm a I'm very much a dive bar guy, Um, you know, and and so I'll just, you know, go to the, you know, the crustiest bar I can find. Grab a stool next to the, you know, the oldest, crustiest guy I can find and just, you know, start and, rapping, and start talking. And, and yeah. invariably you are next to a drug smuggler who just got a prison, a deposed third world leader. You know, you're a serial <laughs> killer. You know, I mean, you know, it's just like it's it's just that kind of town, you know. And so um, and that's how we met like John Roberts, for example, the cocaine uh, wholesaler that, that we interviewed in Cocaine Cowboys. Uh, my my cousin met him at the pool at his condo in Aventura. And wow. invited us over, and we just started talking to him. And were you and worried? He, like, are, what what level of fear is there when you're rolling into this culture? You know, I I, I live in Miami, man. I mean, if you're going to be afraid all the time, then you're afraid yeah. of anything. If you're going to be afraid of anything, you're going to be afraid all the time. I guess is the best right. way to put it. So you just can't you just can't live like that, you know. So I I just don't really. I mean, we went into into a, three different prisons to interview. Rivi Ayala, the, 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 uh, the hitman, the assassin that we interviewed. The deadliest hitman of the era. Right? Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, he, he, I think he 
confessed to upwards of two dozen murders and was a suspect in at least a dozen additional uh, murders. And and so, uh, you know, you just got to and when you go into prison to do an interview, you have to sign, you know, for the state like, uh, you know, one of those like liability waivers, you know, and and basically what it kind of said was like when you go skydiving, you sign this waiver that's like, yep. you are you die, considered it's on you, man. That Well, it's it actually is like one step further. It's like. You're considered legally dead from the moment you jump out of that perfectly good airplane until right. such time as your feet safely touch that ground. Like there's no, there's no, like you're jumping out of a plane voluntarily. You're not, you know, we don't consider you alive anymore until we hear otherwise, basically. And, and, um, and it's kind of like that. You sign this waiver. It basically says we do not negotiate in the event of riot or hostage, you know, situation. And so you kind of go in eyes wide open and, and, uh, you know, so you just, but that's like, that's life in Miami. Like you just can't go around afraid all the time. Otherwise you won't live. You won't, you won't go, you won't go outside because it can be a pretty scary place. So you just kind of go. With the flow, we're, we're we're documentary filmmakers, we're nonfiction storytellers, and and the more dangerous the person you meet, the more compelling potentially the uh you know <laughs> the story is. So you gotta you gotta go after it. But what's funny about it is that now, flash forward, what I mean, we're I mean, when we were trying to make, we were making like an 05, so we're now 13 years later. Now the first call that people make when they get out of prison is to their mom. The second call is to raconteur, is to us, and <laughs> we hear from people. You have no, dude. I'll make I, you famous. Dude, I swear to God, I got a, I got a fucking email the other day. The subject, it's just some, some insight into my life. The subject in all caps is Nevin Shapiro's father. That's the subject line. And of course it was Nevin Shapiro's father and he's in federal prison, wants to talk to me, wants to get it on core links, which is the, the, uh, the federal prison's, uh, email system. And like, but this happens all the time. You know, we heard, you know, uh, we, we heard from, uh, we heard from Tony Bosch from the biogenesis case, you know, uh, the A-Rod case. We heard from him on his way into federal prison and on the way out of federal prison. Um, that was, we, we got, we, we heard from him on both ends. Um, this is just like, and, and there are countless stories like that. Now they kind of come to us, you know, in a way. And so now we have to vet, like, you know, to your first question was like, we have to figure out where, what, what are the most compelling stories to tell and, and how best to, 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 to gauge that. And we have a, we have a formula. It's, 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 it's not foolproof, but it's idiot proof that we kind of apply to know whether or not, you know, it's going it, to, it's going to turn out well, or we hope that it's going to turn out well. And we just try to, to go with that. And of course, go with our gut. All right. We'll go to the U in one second, but I'm so interested. You noted this eyes wide open philosophy. What's it like to look into an assassin's eyes? I got to tell you something. He was, I'm going to start out. He was lovely. Uh, I guess is what, meaning like he was like, you know, he was soft spoken. He was like a good looking guy. Like he was sharp, you know, like we met him and he had like this, this sharp haircut, like, uh, Sean, I could describe it as Sean Connery's toupee in Hunt for Red October. You remember that? Like that sharp, cool, badass, like, yeah, you know, it had that, the widow's peak, but it was like white and spiked up. So we had a fresh haircut. He had a, you know, he had a brand new, fresh white pair, bright white pair, clean, brand new tennis shoes. Um, he had bling, you know, some kind of, you know, uh, a bling, you know, gold around his neck. He had a, he had a watch that was on like, it was on his wrist. I remember backwards. So he would have to, you know, turn his hand around, you know, instead of looking on the back of his arm, he'd look on the front of his arm and mm-hmm. he'd keep glancing at it. I'm like, where does this guy got to go? I mean, he's got, he's serving three lifetimes, but he kept glancing at the watch. Um, and he was just, and he, you know, sharp eyes, obviously, but, and really soft spoke. I don't know if you can hear me, but he spoke really, really soft. Now, I don't know if that was a product of, you know, him being institutionalized. You know what I mean? Like spending sure. like his, you know, from his twenties to, to his sixties, basically fifties in prison. Um, also he had a very high pitched voice. Apparently Riverita is a Colombian cartoon character that had like a very squeaky voice. And That's so how he got the name. Right. So he had this squeaky voice. He later got surgery to deepen his voice because he was so self-conscious about it. And and he, that's how he got his nickname of Rivia, Riverita, was from that cartoon character. And I think that might have given him a bit of a complex. And so maybe that's why he was so soft spoken. But here's the thing. When you're when you speak that quietly. It requires other people to shut up and listen very intently. And oftentimes you got to lean in to him yeah. like ear to ear you know what i mean like just to to have a conversation and then you realize at some point during the conversation because he's so kind of charming and so calm and so soft spoken that 
you're like, oh, like this is a, a murderer of women and children. Like this is like this is a this is a contract killer. Um, and and it, it it you you have to you get jolted. You get you get. I think maybe that's why he was so good at what he did. He was very disarming, you know. And then you have to kind of like snap back into reality. Like, where the hell am I? Who am I? Who am I talking to? There's this crazy story. So our first documentary we're talking about, Raw Deal. We a question of consent. We did a deal with a dis- distribution company that wound up like basically going out of business, selling itself off, and we kind of got caught up in that like corporate drama. You know that happens, and and they weren't gonna. Re- they told us we w- we're not gonna release your movie, we're not gonna pay for your movie, and we're not gonna give it back to you. And that was a very frustrating experience for you know for first time filmmakers who thought they had just we had just experienced a Sundance dream, and now it was a nightmare. And so you know we went on to work on Cocaine Cowboys while we were struggling and you know and and dealing with all the legalities of like trying to get our our movie back, you know, or that we made uh, just basically five of us made this whole movie all together and like just wanted to get our movie back, you know. And and so we're um, my producing partner Alfred Spellman. Uh, we're, we're in the, in the prison, uh, about to interview Rivi and we're setting up, I'm setting up the equipment and Alfred is kind of sitting down reviewing our interview notes and Rivi's already sitting there because they brought him out and, uh, he's just waiting on us to, you know, get the equipment set up to, to roll the interview. And, and Alfred, I guess, Rivi's a very perceptive guy too. I mean, he, he was one of the only guys in the crew that knew English, that read English. He was kind of Americanized. He would read the obits every day. He'd read the Miami Herald cover to cover and try to look for the enemies of Griselda Blanco, his boss, who were on the hit list that she had given him. Like, he was very, an interesting, you know, character that way. And so, but he was very perceptive. So he's looking at Alfred, my, my producing partner, and he's like, Hey, Alfred, you okay? And Alfred's like, yeah, yeah, I'm just going through the notes. And he's like, no, no, you look, you look distracted. You look like something's on your mind. And we had known him, you know, for a little bit at that point. And, 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 uh, Alfred says, yeah, I guess, you know, it's just this, we're going through this thing with our, our distributor on our other movie, our first movie. And, and he's like, you know, they, they, they won't pay us for this, uh, this movie. They won't release it. They won't let it, you know, it's just, it's, it's a real problem for us. And it's just really frustrating. And Rivi goes, somebody owes you money. Oh man. And Alf, and Alf goes, oh man. Well, well not exactly. He goes, you just call my brother. I'll give you my brother. He's in Fort Lauderdale. I'll give you his number. You just call him. He'll take care of it. You don't, what? you just tell him, you just tell him, give him a name, give him an address. Just tell him, you know, he's like, and we're like, and what's funny, it's funny about that is, you know, we, we went, we did it the right way. We did it the legal way. We got the movie back. Everything's free and, you know, free and clear at, you know, about a year later. But it, it was always that, that sort of funny moment where we laughed like, well, we can always call Rivi's brother, you know, you know what I mean? Like, wow. Like that. And, and it was sort of a relief to us in a very hard time in our, in our careers, you know, that, that like, well, there's always Rivi's brother. And we would just laugh about it, obviously. But, uh, but like, but that was his mentality. And that was, uh, that was his uh, way of, uh, of, 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 uh, problem, uh, res, Conflict resolution, if you will. It's all so fascinating, man. Uh, let's uh, let's switch over to the U, which for our sports people, uh, we we have all kinds listening to this podcast, but of course a lot of them are sports people, it being an ESPN property. When you started to conceptualize the U, what was your pitch to the players? Well, at the time, it was called Hurricane Season. Um, there was another movie – uh, around the same time that came out with that, with that title. Uh, I think it was about a team in, uh, in, in New Orleans during, during Katrina. Um, I'm sorry, Nolans, Nolans, uh, mm-hmm. during Katrina. And so we obviously had to change the name. I think that was for the best. I think the U is a badass, uh, <laughs> title, uh, for sure. Um, it, it made the sequel a little awkward. You know, we were calling it the U2 and we're like, that's problematic. Maybe we're have to put a, you know, wedge a part in there, like a, you know, um, but, uh, like a Godfather movie. But, um, I think the appeal was that, you know, uh, Cocaine Cowboys was a movie that had been uh, em- embraced by a diverse audience, you know, that included um, the hip hop audience who really kind of went out and championed it, even when it was on bootleg, wanted to go out and tell people to see it. And, I, and it was because of that, that audience, that community, I think that it really blew up. So I think that gave us as filmmakers a little bit of street cred, you know, there. Um, and and uh, on the other hand, too, is that uh, we were alumni. Uh, yeah, of right. the University of Miami, and and um, I think I I did the math at some point. I I think the total it was something crazy. Like of all the crew that worked on the U Part One, we had collectively something like seventy five years at the University of Miami. You know, if you like <laughs> added up, it was something. It was something. And if you, if you want to translate that into tuition money, I mean, you'd be uh, it ain't you know, cheap, man. It ain't cheap. And so uh, we, you know, it it was funny that I think that. So I think that one two punch was like we're the guys who made Cocaine Cowboys, and we attended the University of Miami. We were Miamians. I went to the Orange Bowl during that era 
when, when my dad had a ticket to spare. Um, and so I, I think that just gave us, uh, you know, that one, two punch, uh, I think gave us a lot of credibility with, uh, with the, you know, with ESPN films at the time with, with the players that we were pitching. It did not help with the university who was not happy we were doing it, did not want us to do it, tried What'd to discourage. Oh, hell, man. They, they tried to discourage us from doing it. Then they started to actively call former coaches and players and tell them to not participate, uh, with us. Um, and it was a bummer too, cause like, I mean, we're like, I, you know, I triple majored at UM and one of my majors was filmmaking and as screenwriting in particular. And like, it's a hard game, you know, it's a hard racket and we're out here trying to make it happen in a very difficult and competitive field. And they're trying to screw us up. You know, it's listen, it's one thing to say, no, thank you. We won't participate. I expect that, you know, uh, but like to actively go out, proactively go out and try to discourage former players who you have no control over and thank god listen those those players didn't listen to the administration when they attended school they sure <laughs> weren't gonna weren't gonna listen to them uh you know 20 30 years later but you know they the university was scared i think about the angle that we would take um and listen if you go back now this is about 07 you know what was happening in 07 nevin shapiro was running a muck man sure. he was running a muck so we didn't know about that at the time but they might have been worried that if they had given us the access that we wanted that maybe we would have come across that but we were not making it about the team of that time obviously this was a you know this was a historical documentary about what you know what was known as the team of the 80s you know from from uh uh you know from 83 basically to to uh you know to to late i would say we weren't going to do a one originally we thought we might but but we knew that was a different team a different story you know that that ended after you know you know the the 91 uh championship but like um we the and, and i think the university was probably not thrilled with the final product, but let me tell you one thing. Uh, they certainly uh, have traded on it ever since. <laughs> I'll tell you that, man. In what ways? Well, hell, we would start hearing from people like, you know, they got, uh, you know, a fancy, uh, uh, you know, coach style like shuttle buses for recruits. You know, they show them Miami and everything, yep. and you won't believe what the in-flight movie is on those buses. Uh, <laughs> the onboard, the onboard movie, they got the you on a loop, dude. Nice. And, um, yeah, and then, and, and obviously, uh, you know, they, they started to, to, uh, I, I, every, even, even Randy Shannon, uh, at the time had to admit during, uh, you know, during a press, press day when he was asked about the doc that it was a hell of a recruiting tool, obviously. And, and everybody said, I think now you have to remember, <clears throat> particularly now, cause we're, I mean, the, the U part one came out in December of 09, uh, the U part two in 2014. Uh, I hear from journalists who cover the team, you know, that's their beat, man, you know, daily. Uh, they tell me that almost to a T, virtually 100% of the recruits over the last, you know, since basically 2010, have all said that one of the top, if not the top reason that they chose to play football at the University of Miami is are the U documentaries. Wow. And if you think about it, though, let's be real. I mean, not 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 to diss them. I mean, they're doing their best, especially now. Finally, um, you know, they're trying their hardest. But like, let's be real. What has this team accomplished? In the last 10 years, you know what I mean? That, that could, that could attract, uh, a talent. You know, what, what has come out of the, you know what I mean? Like it's not, they're, they're not, right. they're not. The proofs on a football field. Hell yeah. And they're not racking right. up those draft, uh, stats the way they used to. And so, you know, so you've got to try to appeal to, and these kids, Marty, you know, they're, they're 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. So they have no, the last, they weren't born yet the last time the University of Miami right. won a national championship. You know, so what do they have to hang on to? What is, what is the appeal for them? I mean, you know, now they finally, you know, they're building, they broke ground on the indoor practice, uh, you know, a, a, a stadium, but like there, there's no, there, you know, facilities they're wanting, financing, you know, funding they've been wanting, uh, you know, uh, uh wins they've been wanting, draft picks they've been wanting. So it's like, what is really, you know, what's filled that deficit in the history of this team? And I got to tell you, I, nothing makes me more flattered or honored than when I hear fans and people say, like, and, and players and former players say, you know, the U documentaries have now become a part of the history of the program. Meaning now when you kind of look back, you know, on what in, in, it generated the excitement, enthusiasm around the program in this period, Lord knows it, it, you know, it hasn't been much else. And I'm very proud to be a part of that, that history and that legacy now. You should be. And I think part of the brilliance, certainly of the first one is the intensity, even still 
I mean, these are, when you did that movie, these are mid-40s to 50-year-old men <laughs> that are talking about their teens and early 20s, and they were still so damn intense. I mean, I think Robert Bailey's the most angry some <laughs> in the world. Like, I mean, like Robert Robert looked like he wanted to go out and strap up and knock piss out of somebody right, you know, right it then make, on it the makes set. Him a, it makes him a good agent, I think. You know? <laughs> he is. He is that. Why, why, why do you think they're so, still so intense about it? What is it? You know, I, 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 and some of them were in playing shape. Zoe, I mean, Alonzo Highsmith was like, he was, he was another size human being. I mean, but he was in ridiculous shape because, you know, he was, you know, he, he still works in the, uh, you know, in the, in, in the front office now in the NFL. So I think he's working out with the play, you know, with the players all the right. time. Some of these guys looked like ready to hit the field, man. Um, and, uh, you know what I think it was? I think, uh, these, they're the same. I, I know this now getting older. It's like, and, and the way you used to sort of judge other, uh, judge adults when you were young. You're like, well, they're supposed to be adults. Why are they just big kids? And you realize we're all just big kids. You know, you know, we're all just trying to make our own way and figure it out. And, and, you know, we're all kind of in a way the same people that we always were. Yeah. You can have some wisdom. You can mature, but we're still, we're still those same people. And so these guys, I mean, these guys overcame a lot, man. They overcame a lot. I mean, to, to, I mean, especially the guys from, from Miami, like Alonzo, like, like Rob Bailey, the guys who were local, um, you know, in Miami, you know, we had an influx of, of Cuban refugees who uh, have become the majority, if you will. They're not the minority. They're now like, you know, the majority of the community. And traditionally, I think in, in American cities, uh, I say traditionally, it's a shameful tradition. African Americans are treated like second class citizens in Miami since the seventies, really. They've been treated like third class citizens, you know, and so I think that made Miami one of the hardest places to be black uh, in America. Uh, and I think that that uh, that enhanced the intensity that that certainly chiseled harder at the chip on their shoulder. Then they came into this private, expensive, exclusive um private school in Coral Gables. What the fuck is Coral Gables? People don't even, most people don't know that like University of Miami is not even in Miami. It's in Miami Dade County, but it is not in the city of Miami. It is in the city of Coral Gables. And, uh, you know, and it is a, it is a, it is a white place, man. And, and it is, it is a, it is a pretty wealthy, uh, place too. It's a little more diverse now, but that just means there's more, you know, uh, Cuban people and Hispanic people, uh, there. And, and, you know, there's, not a lot of opportunity uh, there, and and they were out of place. I mean, you probably remember, uh, you know, I think uh, Benny Blades told the story. I mean, you know, getting pulled over, you know, <laughs> you know, driving through Lily White, um, Coral Gables, and um, you know, and so even when they were finally there, and uh, you know, they had gotten a scholarship, they had sort of proven themselves to an extent. It was still a struggle, uh, you know, in Coral Gables, and right around the campus, and then and then they started winning, and then I I don't know, it 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 everything seemed to be about overcoming some kind of adversity every step of the way, even when they were winning, you know, there was something that was, you know, there was an obstacle that was not fair. That was not right that they had. To, so I think you, you live a life uh, like that. Um, and, and, and you, you, you know, you come out uh, the other end with that same intensity, with that same passion, you know, and, and with that same chip on your shoulder. And, and, uh, and I think that's part of the excitement too, is that, you know, the way we interview people is we really like to put them in the moment, you know, not just like, oh, tell me a story, you know, but we like to get them excited, you know, <laughs> get them pumped about like this game, this play, this way of life, this era, this place. Florida um, State's video. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, that's actually good. I should have started every interview with that, with the music video. I don't want to be redundant here, but I think this is a very important theme in, in those movies. Sort of what you were just discussing. You did this amazing job of telling the story of Miami in that era through the University of Miami football team in that era. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, why I mean, was that? Why was that important to the story? Well, there was, a, there was a, a couple things. I think I think documentaries are far more, and I think any documentarian will tell you this: are far more compelling when there's a uh, a macro and a micro. You know the sure. Like in, you know, in Cogan Cowboys, for example, I always describe that m documentary as a mosaic. And each person we interviewed is a tile in the mosaic, you know, and, and you have your drug smuggler, you have your wholesaler, you have your hitman, you have your uh, uh, newspaper, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning crime writer, you have your TV reporter, you have a, a couple lawyers, you have a couple cops, you know, and then when you zoom out, 
the mosaic is downtown, you know, is the skyline of Miami, you know, and like, so Cocaine Cowboys is really about Miami, the way like The Wire is about Baltimore, you know, in addition to being about all of the individual characters, you're telling a bigger story. And I think that just, that's, that's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a hook, you know, that the audience can hang their, their, uh, their hat on and, and, or their helmet on. And, and that was true of, of Miami though, too, is that like, you know, it reminds me so much of our dream documentary, the 86 Mets, you know, where, where the, the team mirrored the town, you know, you had this down on their luck team, you had this tum- down on, on their luck town, this really tumultuous, dangerous era where the media was, was, was crapping all over the, uh, the town where it was notoriously dangerous, uh, place to be where it was overrun with drugs and crime, uh, getting terrible headlines the world over. You had a terrible sports, uh, environment, um, you know, with the, with the, you know, even the dolphins were struggling, uh, really. And well, ever since, I mean, <laughs> so, um, but like, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, you know, comes this, like this young team of renegades in a renegade town. That people can just, and, and the Orange Bowl is right in the middle of Little Havana. You know, it was in the f-ing city. You know, I mean, it was just like right in, the, it, it, it was like it, it wasn't an on-campus stadium, which is a bummer, but the campus was Miami. So it was in the, I mean, you know, people right across the street from homes, you know, where people, you know, $10 no blocky to park on their, to park in their driveway or their front yard. And, <laughs> and it was just so much a part of the pulse of the, uh, of the town. And, and so suddenly you had this group of young guys, not even professionals, which is even more exciting, I think, you know, um, I'm much, I'm much, a much bigger, uh, college football fan than I'll ever be an NFL fan or NBA fan. You There's just something. Both. Yeah, there's just something more exciting about vote, you know, uh, about rooting for 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 these guys and you know these kids and um and so like the town just gets behind them, man, and and suddenly you have a point of pride in a place where there where there was there was no hope, where there was like just just dis- international despair, you know, around your city. And I felt the same way about the '86 Mets. Like to me, it's the same story, but with MLB in New York in the '80s, you know, and and so it just seemed the best way, and especially. When, you know, Howard Schnellenberger came up with the concept of the state of Miami, you know, drawing that imaginary line at the I-4 corridor and saying, no, what's funny about that is it's a really sophisticated strategy, but he also had no money. He had no budget to send his assistant coaches all over the country. You know, if he had one player he was targeting in a key position, he would he would scrape together airfare, you know, you know, for a coach, but but otherwise it was a I always say uh um I'm an indie, independent filmmaker, I have to think this way, but limitations breed creativity. And man was Howard Schnellenberger creative. He also of course was, you know, from the uh you know, the Don Shula uh you know, uh, 1972 undefeated Dolphins team. So he was aware of the talent down down here, but he all, it was also out of necessity, you know, that he had to recruit as much local talent as he could and knew, I guess kind of like we 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 thought later with our documentary career that like this is an untapped Miami is an untapped resource for, you know, talent and stories and and characters and and he and he went out and he did that and it was it seemed like such a Miami story altogether and so better to or appropriate to make it just as much about Miami as it was about football because the Canes had such a resurgent year last year under coach Rick yeah I've spent my entire November in that city like almost my entire November every weekend and to me Miami the University of Miami is the ultimate never graduate school (laughs) <laughs> because if you played in that program, there's almost this obligation. It's this. It's an unspoken obligation. And I, I talked to Ray Lewis about what that obligation is, and his answer was, be your brother's keeper forever, forever and ever. And I think about, wasn't it Lamar Thomas? Was it Lamar Thomas that was like, you don't come into the OB? Wasn't that him? I don't oh, remember. yeah, the, F- the FIU brawl at the yeah, Orange Bowl. You don't Bowl. come yes, into the OB! He got fired for that. <laughs> so I just think about all of those things, and I wonder, I wonder how that is re-energized. Like when those guys, when those guys sat down in the seat with you, I imagine there was one demeanor, right? And I imagine with each passing question, the you blood was pumping more and more vigorously. How accurate is that? Is that an accurate assumption? You know, it's funny about that. I think about one of my favorite little deleted scenes is like uh, Brett Romberg. So, you know, great big Canadian. Uh, and so this guy is talking about, I think he like, 
if I remember the story correctly, I haven't seen the footage in, in some time, but in the U part two, he's like, never took a campus visit. He, he went online or something and like, you know, got, or got a brochure or something and said, I'm getting the hell out of here and I'm going down to Miami and going to school. He's never left. Man never left. Married, ma- married a Latin woman and <laughs> bought a house and never fing left. So there's like, there's just something about that. T- this town it always had, I mean, the Bee Gees came here to do an album and they never left. They bought three houses right next to each, two, three mansions right next to each other and they left. Once you come here, like you, you said yourself every weekend and <laughs> why, why would you ever want to leave this place? Miami is the place that everybody wants to, that's why there's so many haters. You know, Miami is the place that everybody, uh, uh, wants to be, that everybody wishes they could be. Everybody wants a piece of it. Dude, that's why they call it my fucking Amy. You know, it's mine. You know, it's my, it's not our Amy or your Amy. It's mine, baby. You know, so I always think about Brett, like people came and they never left and, and some of them never left geographically. But yeah, I mean, as, as Ray Lewis, I mean, no, nobody ever leaves emotionally, you know what I mean? Or spiritually or your they heart never, your heart never. Uh, never leaves. There's just obviously a special place about it. And because so many people are from so someplace else here, I mean, you know, you got parents and grandparents and people like, you you know, who lived here for 40, 50, 60 years. Say, hey, where are you from? They still say Philadelphia, you know, Chicago, uh, you know, New York. Everybody's from someplace else. And so there's a real point of pride in the, uh, you know, the 305 till I die kind of generation, which is pretty recent, pretty modern, this idea that like, not, you know, this is not a place that a lot of people are from, you know, so if you're born here, um, there's a, there's a certain pride, uh, in, in, in that, I think. And, and, um, you know, and, and I, I think that's, I think it's, uh, it's special that way. You alluded to it right there with that story. I can't imagine the challenge of editing these movies. Uh, <laughs> there must've been so much gold that never saw the light of day. What was the challenge to cut them down? It's even harder you know, for ESPN or for t- or for television in general, for cable in general, I will say the upside of ESPN is they give you more. The thirty for thirties have more runtime than any two hour block on cable television or basic. T- I mean, they give us more time. They minimize the commercials. Um, you know, ordinarily you get like maybe an hour on cable is like forty one thirty. You know what I mean? You get forty one yeah, sure. minutes thirty seconds out of an hour. The rest are commercials and promos. Uh, ESPN, you can do as many as like a hundred and two minutes, a hundred and thirty minutes, a hundred and three minutes rather. You know, in a two hour block, which is which is much longer than you get elsewhere but man is it still tough you know you got to carve those six acts out you know you got to carve those five breaks and you're losing stuff and it's breaking your heart man <laughs> it's, it's just it's really hard what you got to do is you got to commit to a structure you know that you that you know and and, it, and if something doesn't fall into that criteria of your beginning middle and end or your you know your three act structure you just gotta you know you gotta make a hard decision you gotta bite the bullet and and let it go i think the the thing with this is that um is that i always say the best Sports documentaries or the best sports movies are the ones that are the least about sports. And Amen. so, yeah, and so that's helpful. Like my biggest, my biggest, uh, 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 you know, beef with the U part two is that there's too much football in it. You know, I would have liked to have spent more time off the field, more time in, you know, some of the conflicts that had nothing to do with, you know, this game, that play, this championship, losing this one, winning that one. That's, you know, cause, and, and I gotta tell you, one of the, you know, worst kept secrets in filmmaking is that sports movies, docs or, or, or scripted or otherwise, are the easiest movies to make because, you know, drama, which is all about conflict, obstacles, overcoming adversity, that's already baked into a sports That story. is sports. You know? That's <laughs> yeah, what sports you've, is. Right. You've already got it. So all you need to do is tell, you know, even if you think about it, even like the mediocre sports movies, even the bad sports movies, you could still watch them. You know, they're on cable. You still chill on the couch and, and you'd be like, this is pretty effective, you know, <laughs> either way, you know, and, and, and it's kind of like cheating in a way, making a sports movie. So it's, it's more fun. So yeah, a lot of this stuff is, and, and whenever we do home video, a lot of shit's digital now, but whenever we have the opportunity with any of our documentaries to do, uh, you know, bonus features, you know, like on a Blu-ray or whatever, I always put deleted scenes. I mean, there's like as many as 30 minutes or more of deleted scenes on all of our uh, documentaries, including on the U, the U Part 2, Cocaine Cowboys. The original edit of Cocaine Cowboys was four hours long. Wow. And we didn't – and I – I was convinced that there was nothing we could cut, you know, from that. I was like, no, it's done. It's four hours. And we, obviously we cut it down to two. And then we later revisited it on uh, Cooking Cowboys Reloaded, where I got to re-edit the movie from scratch, like not really caring about the runtime. That wound up being 
two hours and 30 minutes with like over 60% new material in that, wow. in that version of the movie. And we still had deleted scenes on the Blu-ray, you know, and as a bonus feature, I like, those are my favorite. I love to go online or go on a Blu-ray or DVD and explore deleted scenes, especially in Cocaine Cowboys and the U movies. The shit that didn't make the cut is just as good as the stuff that did. We just didn't have. The time for it, you know, or so it didn't fit the theme. I mean, you know, in a in a yes. in a very different way, but similarly, uh, I guess fundamentally similarly, I live that every day in television. Sure, we get these tiny. You know, I'm going to interview Tiger Woods or Nick Saban or Urban Meyer or Cristiano Ronaldo, and I, I get eight minutes if I'm really lucky. Typically, I get four, and that means fifty of them are dead. Right. They live on that floor <laughs> over there. And yeah, and it's just like, it's nauseating. You just want to puke in your mouth. <laughs> Brother, well, on that note. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I, I'm at the Clevelander Hotel. Nobody's puking in their mouth here. They're puking every place else. I'll tell you. This, <laughs> I am a huge fan and I can't thank Thanks, you buddy. enough thank for you. taking the time and offering the insight on uh, your tremendous talent, what you and your brothers do, uh, on a daily basis. And you guys make sure that if you haven't seen Billy's work, go find it. He's easy to find. Just hit Google. Brother, thank you so much, man. Thank you, sir. Go Canes. Absolutely fascinating. Fascinating person. Fascinating story. Fascinating storyteller. Uh, it's his life's work, and it's the gift that the good Lord gave him. Billy's wide open. I mean, you guys heard it. That guy's full throttle all the time. And if you have not been to his Twitter page, go. His Because Florida contributions to the Twitter machine are a great public service. In fact, he started sending them directly to me now that we've discussed it on the podcast. Appreciate you, Billy. Uh, and there's more on that in just a moment, by the way. If you love funny headlines and funny Florida stories, you're going to want to hang around for the Hillbilly Hotline. It's an all-timer. Trust me on this. But first... It's the Marty Party. What are we going to do, bud? We're going to drink one of these beers. Hand me one of them damn beers real quick. What's up, man? Marty Party. All right, y'all. In this week's Marty Party, we're going to discuss music. Any of you guys who know anything about me know that I am a country music nut. I am a student of its history. I am a passionate consumer of it. All eras. And I have many, many, many friends in the industry and the format right now. Some of my dearest friends are in the format. And on Friday night, Laney and I went with some friends of ours to see Kenny Chesney. Laney too loves country music. We both love country music and the opportunities it provides us, the opportunities to connect and to disconnect. The opportunities to release, the opportunities to relax and to laugh and to remember. The beauty of a country music show, especially with artists like Chesney, is the beauty of happiness. Everyone's happy. Everybody's singing and drinking and dancing and erasing inhibitions. And they connect and they disconnect. I once began writing a song called Country Is My Rock. I thought it was this super witty turn on a phrase. Country is my rock, because music provides us time stamps for life's moments. My marriage to Laney, nearly 18 years now, To Make You Feel My Love by Garth Brooks. That's our wedding song. Every When I hear the first note, the first thing I think of is my gorgeous wife in her wedding dress. As I tape this, it's Mother's Day. She's the most wonderful mother our children could ever dream of having. Because she's her, we're us. And there's so much beauty for us in the life that she directs. Music buoyed me after the deaths of my parents. It calmed me during the births of my children. Again, time stamps. I don't watch a whole lot of television at my house. It's just not my thing. Of course, I watch sports. Um, I'm addicted to sports. It's my living. It's my greatest passion other than music and family. So, of course, I watch a lot of sports, but... Generally, I'm turning on music because for me, music is a release. Music is a vehicle. Music is therapy. Music is a bond and a fortress and a life preserver. Music is wonderful. By the way, uh, 
that song idea, Country is My Rock, not nearly as tricky as I thought. It's been done. Trent Tomlinson had a record entitled Country is My Rock in 2006. Thank you, country music. You are a wonderful, wonderful friend to me, to my wife. You are the reason to convene for my dearest friends and me. And I am forever indebted to your influence on my life. And we had a hell of a good time in the rain at Kenny Chesney. Appreciate it. Now, that was uh, as eloquent as I can possibly be, I think. <laughs> Let's turn the page a little bit. It's time for the Hillbilly Hotline. Words, sayings, or just a way of life? Roman candles? That's a redneck mortar launcher. That's what that is. <laughs> this is Hillbillyisms. In this week's Hillbilly Hotline, we have an absolute natural treasure. There was a story last week out of Daytona Beach at the airport where a naked man was threatening that he'd planted a bomb. And so producer Travis, my ace producer, uh, both on the Marty Smith's America podcast and on our Saturday morning redneck extravaganza, Marty and McGee, he ran down the Volusia County, Florida sheriff, Sheriff Michael Chitwood. And he asked Sheriff Chitwood if he would come on the program and discuss the happenings and the goings-on in Volusia County. They have the Daytona 500 and Speed Weeks down there. They have Bike Week. And they have naked dudes running through the airport. So we thought he might be a good guest. We were wrong. He was the greatest guest in the history of the program. Buckle up. It's time for the Hillbilly Hotline. The phone goes off at 6 a.m., that we just tased a naked man in the baggage carousel at the airport. And, it, it, you know, I was out on my bike, and you got to stop. You'll look. You're like, can I just read that right? A naked guy in the airport at 6 a.m.? But like you guys said, it's Daytona Beach. Hey, anything's liable to happen. Right. Then it gets a little bit more interesting, because then they tell us, he's now telling us that he planted a bomb in a bathroom that was under construction. So now we have a full-blown drama going on with the bomb squad and evacuate the terminal and stopping people from boarding planes. And fortunately for us, uh, he had he had arrived at the airport closed, and then he went into the bathroom was under construction, stripped down, uh, cut a hole in the sheetrock, and shoved everything behind the sheetrock, and then uh, went from there. So, uh, Sheriff Chilwood, you, you're a Philadelphia guy. Um, I, I know you uh, – FBI grabbed Quantico, uh, Oklahoma. You've been in Florida now for a while, and we do this segment, Hillbilly Headlines, which is just kind of unusual news stories from around the country, which this obviously qualifies. Why do you think most of what we do comes out of the state of Florida? And what's been your experience down there? I I think it's the gravitational pull from the Atlantic Ocean because (laughs) we get get people – they get out of jail in New Hampshire, and and they get an urge to rob a bank. So what do they do? They get off of I-95, and they drive into Daytona Beach, and they rob the bank. Now, of all that whole ride from New Hampshire down, you didn't get the urge to rob a bank until you saw the next six exits are the city of Daytona Beach, and you just got off and robbed the first bank off of I-95. So, and what was even better was he presented a demand note and he, it was on the back of a piece of mail that had his name on it. So it really, it, it was it was solved in a matter of minutes. That you know, I don't think he got out of out of uh, the Daytona Beach area when he was locked up. Sheriff, oh. I have to ask you, and I'm sure that the, the the list that you have of stupid criminal activity is as long as your leg. But other than the naked man and the guy with the piece of mail, what what is the stupidest stupidest arrest you've ever made? Uh, I'll tell you, we had, when I was the chief of Daytona Beach, my executive assistant had a stun file, which is nuts spelled backwards, and she would get all these things, and, and she would keep them in there, and, you know, when they were having a bad day, she would just throw that on my desk. But I, I'll hearken back to, uh, to my Philadelphia days, and uh, I'm working the midnight to eight shift, and I'm sitting at a red light at 4 a.m., and this guy comes walking in front of the patrol car, really nice, long, full-length leather coat on and nice shoes and a nice hat and as he walks by you could see the tags fluttering from his ensemble 
as she's walking by the car. Well, it didn't take much to know something just got burglarized. So you jump out of the car. Hey, man, that's really a nice coat. Yeah, nothing but the best. And uh, put your hands behind your back. Well, what for? Because you forgot to cut the tags off, my man. And, of course, there he was a burglary like four blocks away where they had knocked out the window and alarm didn't go off. And he got himself a nice full leather coat. He got leather boots and new pants. He even got new underwear out of that. So he probably was... Uh, one of the more dumber people that I've come in contact with. He was naked at some point as well. At some point, he got, you know, listen, (laughs) whenever we serve a search warrant, it's it's always about drugs and sex. No matter, you find the the drugs and there's sex involved in there somewhere. So, you know. So, how how much different, or is it different, because it feels like it's like this all the time, what's it like during speed weeks? Like July fourth in Daytona, the the NASCAR race, and then in February when we're there, what is it? Is there a pickup in weirdness, or is it stay about the same? Bike week, it, bike week has oh, to be yeah. the craziest, now, right? Now, bike week is the weirdness. Bike week is is really weird. But when NASCAR comes to town, NASCAR fans are really great fans, and they really, other than you know, drive around on their motorized Budweiser coolers, they don't they don't cause too much of a problem for us. But bike week, man, you get some real characters coming to town. Uh, for Bike Week. There's some pointy outfits, and, uh, uh, you know, like we have a woman who protests uh, every year she gets out there, and she protests uh, 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 bras. She, she thinks it's uh, unconstitutional that women should have to wear bras, or, or, I don't know, God made or devil made bras. And let me tell you something there is one woman that you don't want to see naked, and she, and she needs to wear a bra. You know, uh, several years ago, she was on the Main Street Bridge fishing. With the bra, and and I thought the only thing, the only damage being done is any kid that walks by, you know, any any heterosexual male sees that, they're going to be like, oh, I gotta, I'm running away from this. That's what happens to a woman. Oh my, Sheriff, Sheriff Mike, Ch- Belusia County Sheriff Mike Chitwood joining us on Martin McGee. Uh, Sheriff, uh, my favorite quote from the story. Is is I think you actually sent this to our producer Travis mm-hmm. when we were asked about Mr. Greenwood, the naked man in the airport. You refer to him as a frequent flyer. Frequent flyer, yes. So it, it, in your so do you guys have history frequent, with this cat? Yeah, yeah. He's been uh, he's been Baker acted quite a few times in the past year. Uh, he's also uh, been arrested for assault on a Daytona Beach firefighter and a Daytona Beach police officer, and he's filed. Probably a half a dozen reports claiming to be a victim of a crime. Oh, so there you go. That's a frequent flyer. Arresting people, uh, arresting people is one thing, but when you show up and they they got no clothes on, do you just come around the corner and go, "Oh God, man, why it, do it, you it have to be little, naked?" It, 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 it makes it a little bit hard when you ask them for their license and registration when they're naked. <laughs> that, that definitely could raise a problem with identifying them. But, you know, like I always say, it's Daytona Beach, and stuff happens. You know, stuff just happens here. The gravitational pull of the Atlantic Ocean. I'll be using that that's line. Exact, that's exactly what it is. It's the gravitational pull of the Atlantic Ocean. Sheriff, I used to say, you know, you, we can just put up a sign, scumbags welcome, because that's what they get <laughs> when they get off of 95. You are a national treasure, brother. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you for the Thanks insight guys. this morning. No, we'll, we'll be calling right, well, you We'll again. be doing this again. If you're coming down for the July race, let me know. Maybe we'll get you out one night for some fun on patrol with my guy. Okay. Oh, yeah. Don't yeah. Have, you don't have to ask hey. us twice. Absolutely. We're in. <laughs> Maybe we'll uh, do just a live show. Time. We'll do a live show on patrol. Yeah. <laughs> Our own live there you go. <laughs> we could do that. Admittedly, I do not even know what to say. Thank you, Sheriff Chitwood. You are an absolute national treasure. I am better for having met you. I am better for having heard your stories and save me a seat, brother, because I'm going to take you up on that ride through the streets at night. I can't imagine the things that man sees on a daily basis. It's naked men you don't want to see. It's naked women you don't want to see. It's just naked people because Florida. Thank you, Sheriff. I'm coming. Save me that seat, brother. Appreciate you guys so much for listening. It's the pleasure of my life to get to have this platform and spend this time with you guys, and the fact that you invest in it matters to me. Thank you for that. Thank you to Travis Rockhold, my producer. He's a rock star. I'm blessed to have him. Thank you to Louise Cornetta, who was crazy enough to let us put this thing on air every week and spend this time with you. Her investment and belief 
has been massive to the success of the Marty Smith's America podcast. I want to thank Sheriff Chitwood again. I want to thank Billy Corbin again for his time and his talent. If you guys haven't seen his movies, get on it, especially if you're a sports fan. You're probably a sports fan if you're listening to this. The U and the U Part 2 are among the best 30 for 30 products there's ever been. Check them out. And lastly, as always, the greatest thanks goes to you guys for your time and your passion and your belief. Be well, and we'll see you next week. The Marty Smith America Podcast rolls on. Thanks, guys.